Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. The FT. Welcome back to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. I'm back from my travels in South Africa and we'll be talking later in the show about the impact the World Cup has had on the country and will continue to have. We'll also be looking at the first conviction at Guantanamo Bay under the Obama administration and at the troubled politics of both France and Italy as they approach their summer breaks. I'm joined in the studio by Hugh Williamson, our Europe news editor, and by Helen Worrell. So let's kick off with that story in Guantanamo. One of our Washington-based reporters, Anna Fifield's just been there. Helen, you've been talking to her. On Wednesday, Osama bin Laden's former bodyguard and driver, Ibrahim Al-Khosi, pleaded guilty to conspiracy and terrorism charges at a military commission in Guantanamo Bay. So earlier, I asked Anna Fifield, the FT's US political correspondent, who's currently in Guantanamo Bay, about what Mr Al-Khosi had been convicted of. Yeah, well, he's been uh, pleaded guilty and been convicted of two charges. The first is conspiracy, and the second was providing material support for terrorism. And these relate to the time uh, after 2001 when he was helping Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan. And he is accused of and, and admitted yesterday that he helped Osama bin Laden hide from the U.S. when they were hunting him in the Afghan mountains near Tora Bora at the end of 2001. And uh, he also admitted that he had worked as a driver for Osama bin Laden for some time, and also as a cook at the Star of Jihad compound. Now, this is the first conviction under new rules for military commissions which President Obama has set up. Can you just explain um, briefly what the main difference is between these new commissions and those that were set up by George Bush? Sure. Well, President Obama campaigned and came into office saying that he, um, you know, he despised these military commissions, he questioned their legality, and said that he was going to end them. In fact, he hasn't done that. He's tweaked them kind of slightly and changed the definition for who can be tried in these military commissions. So instead of just mere prisoners of war being tried, they now have to be classified as unprivileged enemy belligerents, which Mr. Al-Khosi was uh, defined as yesterday. But um, the, main, the main changes are really um, quite superficial, I think you could say. And in fact, human rights people that I was talking to yesterday said it was actually worse in one respect uh, for Mr. Al-Khosi yesterday because he was not able to, um, or he had to waive all of his rights for any future claims or, um, you know, he can't contest any future detention. So in some ways it's worse for him rather than, rather than better. So you're saying that he's not actually allowed to appeal this decision? 
basically he can't appeal the, the decision. And he entered a plea bargain yesterday. He's cut some kind of deal with the prosecution, which they wouldn't tell us about. But what we're expecting is he's already served eight years here at Guantanamo, and we're expecting that he might serve another two, and then he will be free to go back to Sudan. But the details of that are not clear yet. But the thing is that under these new commission rules, he can't appeal that at all. That, that is not binding at all. So if the judge sentences him to life and declares he will stay here for life, then he has no recourse on that. Now, one of President Obama's opening pledges was to look into the closing down of Guantanamo Bay. Are we actually coming any closer to that? Not an end. Uh, I mean, President Obama made this pledge. He signed an executive order on his second day in office, and pretty much nothing has happened. Uh, earlier this year, the, the deadline passed in January for closing it within one year, and uh, he announced that the government would buy a federal prison facility in Illinois where they would transfer some of the inmates from Guantanamo, but not all of them. But Congress has blocked the funds to buy that prison, so that's on hold at the moment. And basically there is no political will at all to shut down Guantanamo. And so will the failure to follow through on this pledge, will this weaken President Obama? Yeah, it will. In the eyes of civil rights activists and human rights activists, they're very disappointed in the lack of progress. So it will weaken him in that respect. But on the other hand, there is no political will to do this, either on Capitol Hill or amongst the public. The latest surveys show that 60% of Americans now oppose um, shutting Guantanamo. That was Anna Fifield speaking to us from Guantanamo Bay. Now, Gideon, I understand that you've just returned from a World Cup visit to South Africa. Can you tell us about your trip? It was a fascinating trip. I mean, football aside, it was the first time I'd been to the country since 1989, quite a while ago. The, the last time I was there, P.W. Bhutto was president and uh, apartheid was still in full flow. So it was very interesting for me to revisit some of the places I'd seen before and Although a lot of the stories one hears about South Africa recently have been quite negative, particularly about uh, real problems. They've got crime, very high levels of HIV and so on. What struck me as somebody who's returning after a long time was how much it had improved. For example, I went to Soweto, which is, you know, the big black township outside Johannesburg. And when I'd been there in the 1980s, there were rudimentary roads from Johannesburg to Soweto. The place was not lit at night. There weren't proper shops. All that's changed now. It's served by a sort of major motorway. You've got street lighting at nights. You've got big shopping malls. And that's that's a real transformation. And obviously, there's personal liberty now for blacks, which did not exist. And so the city of Johannesburg has changed enormously. Well, obviously, things have changed a lot since you were last there. But do you think that the World Cup itself will change South Africa for the better? Or will this just be a sort of month-long festival and after that everything returns to how it was before? Well, I think that's a big question for South Africa because they did have a major image problem to do with crime and so on. And I think it's been very beneficial for the country that, you know, hundreds of thousands of foreigners have come in and there's really been remarkably little problem. There hasn't been that much crime and full credit to the South Africans. They made a huge effort to make areas that are sometimes a bit scary, but for example, central Johannesburg safe, and that worked. I think also that a lot of people who haven't been there, you know, been exposed to the, the physical beauty of the country, of places like Cape Town, the game parks and so on. And tourism is potentially, you know, one of the three big industries for South Africa. So if that gets a boost, 
that will be a big help. And I think they've also shown themselves that they can not only cope with, with issues like crime, but public transport's another huge issue in South Africa. They've begun to show that they can build reliable links between the townships and between the big cities. And if they can build on that, that would be great. I think one slightly worrying thing is that a sense that they're kind of going to breathe a huge sigh of relief after the World Cup and say, phew, didn't we do well, and just relax. Whereas, in fact, I think a lot of South Africans are saying, well, look, if you can fix crime for a month, can you perhaps now fix it for more than a month, for years. And I suppose another issue is what will happen to this this collection of stadia which have been built, especially those in fairly uh, out-of-the-way places like Nelspreet. This town has no football team of its own, so we're wondering what will actually happen to it. I mean, it's a big question with all World Cups, but I think it's particularly pointed in South Africa because, I mean, certainly the stadiums are amazing. You know, I went to the ones in Durban and Cape Town. They're among the most impressive football stadiums I've seen anywhere in the world. And yet you you go to townships like a place I went to called Diepschlut. There are a lot of people, which is now a million people in between Johannesburg and and Pretoria, there are people living in tin shacks there without electricity, without running water. I mean, not all of them, in fact, not even most of them, but considerable numbers. And you have to ask yourselves, well, how can you justify spending, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on on a new football stadium when there are people living in conditions like that? And I think you're right. A lot of these stadiums, you know, it's going to be, they're never going to see events as big as this ever again. And some of them may, may really fall into disrepair. The only way they can justify it is if, this is a sort of turning point, both in South Africa's global image and in its uh, image of itself and what's achievable within South Africa if they build on it. Well, back to the actual football itself. On Sunday, we will see Spain and Holland in the final. Hugh, you're the Europe editor. What does this mean for the Spanish and the Dutch? Obviously, they're pretty excited about it. Um, it's actually quite good news for Europe because there's a sort of ex football experts say that the World Cup sort of alternates between Europe and outside Europe. And when it leaves Europe, then Europe, European teams rarely win. So this is sort of proving them wrong. It's also interesting that Spain and Holland, as we know, neither of them have won the World Cup before. So it's a, a new winner is going to be engraved on the trophy on Sunday evening. Um, but yeah, people are excited. A good Dutch friends of mine living in London saying they're going to be heading over to Holland on Sunday, and the country is sort of, you know, bathed in, in orange, both in Spain and in the Netherlands. The drama is building. Yeah, and if any country in Europe needs a pick-me-up, it would be Spain. I mean, they've been through magnificent 20 years economically, politically, and now the, the economy's in deep trouble, high unemployment, so I guess they need a, something to make them feel uh, good. Absolutely, yeah. They've had a fiscal crisis, now they've got an economic crisis. And, of course, not all European countries did well. We'll gloss over England, but France and Italy also had dismal tournaments. They probably could have done with a pick-me-up as well, because politically, they're in tough political times. I mean, both President Sarkozy and President Berlusconi are beset by scandal. And earlier today, Fiona Simon talked to the FT's Paris correspondent, Ben Hall, about the latest scandals that are engulfing President Sarkozy. President Nicolas Sarkozy is facing perhaps the worst political crisis of his presidency after an accountant who worked for the L'Oreal heiress, Liliane Bettencourt, alleged that he took an illegal donation of, or his party took an illegal donation of €150,000 during the 2007 presidential campaign. How serious are these allegations and how is Sarkozy fighting back? Well, the allegations are serious, but... Uh, there is no proof for them. This is a witness account that was reported in a, by a news website. But they are being taken very seriously because it's the latest in a series of revelations involving Liliane Betancourt and her relationship with the governing UMP party. And for the first time, President Nicolas Sarkozy has been drawn directly into this controversy. 
It is very serious for Nicolas Sarkozy because if it were to be proved, it could be a lethal blow to his presidency. But we're a very long way from that. What the scandal has done has just once again confirmed how Mr. Sarkozy has lost political authority. And earlier this spring, he suffered a catastrophic defeat in regional elections and has been trying to bounce back ever since. And uh, at the end of the political season, it seems as if his strategy for bouncing back has not worked. Are the allegations going to be tested in court at any stage? Well, the latest news is that there will be a preliminary and judicial investigation into the allegations made by this um, accountant. So there is now going to be a judicial investigation. How far that gets remains to be seen. And if Sarkozy himself is not directly threatened, his, uh, his Labour minister, Eric Worth, is more closely implicated. Is that not the case? He is, because the scandal, if you like, originated with Eric Wirt, because Eric Wirt used to be the budget minister and therefore in charge of France's tax authorities. And his wife, at the same time, was working for Ms. Betancourt as a wealth advisor. And at the same time, Mr. Wirt, and in fact he still is, was also treasurer for the governing UMP party. And critics of the government have alleged that these are kind of multiple potential conflicts of interest and the, the central allegation, if you like, in this affair is that Miss Betancourt may have benefited from favourable treatment from the tax authority in return for providing financial support to the UMP party. None of this has been proved yet, but that is the central allegation. And these potential conflicts of interest have only been partially addressed by the fact that Mr. Vert's wife has resigned from her job in Miss Betancourt's service. But Mr. Vert remains the treasurer of the UMP party. He has maintained his innocence throughout this saga. He insisted again that he was a victim of a political plot and that he has nothing to reproach himself. What's the impact of all this going to be on the government programme, in particular the proposals to um, reform the pension system? Yeah, Eric Vert is spearheading this controversial and very important reform of France's pension system. The centre-right UMP party claims that Mr Vert is the victim of a political plot precisely because he is in charge of the pension reform. The question is, will this scandal derail the pension reforms? I'm not so sure whether actually when it comes to a reshuffle, they can't just shift, change around the pension minister, bring in a new pension minister, and then the, the reform will carry on as it is. But for the moment, the, uh, Mr Sarkozy is standing very firm behind his pension minister, doesn't want to lose him because he thinks that would be a damaging blow. Sarkozy's had a bit of a rough ride recently and his popularity is at an all-time low. Do you think he can come back from this? That really is the big question. Can Sarkozy bounce back and rebuild popularity? Ms Sarkozy's advisers at the Elysee say you have to distinguish between popularity ratings where Mr Sarkozy does very badly and opinion polls where, you're, where people are asked who would they vote for in the next presidential election where actually Mr Sarkozy does quite a lot better. But um, at the heart of this question is, can Mr. Sarkozy rebuild support amongst his traditional right-wing supporters, many of whom have been fairly disgusted by the way that Mr. Sarkozy has acted as president and not and then subsequent string of um, sleaze allegations, and particular working-class conservative supporters who turned out in force for Mr. Sarkozy in, in 2007, but who may revert back to the far right or even could vote for a centrist candidate. Um, those are the big challenges for Mr. Sarkozy. That was Ben Hall in Paris. 
Hugh, it's, it's fascinating listening to, to the travails of Sarkozy, but these allegations are quite serious. And if they actually go all the way to the presidential office, I mean, is it conceivable that he, he would be forced out of office or is it just impossible to do that with a French president? That could be possible. I think Ben is absolutely right that we're it's very early days for that sort of suggestion, perhaps over the summer, perhaps in the early autumn. I think he wouldn't be forced out on a legal basis. That's unlikely, I think. But as in these sorts of scandals in European countries, it's often the sort of political momentum builds behind it and he loses ground, he loses support. For me, the, the key point, and this is what Ben said right at the beginning, which is about this could be a turning point because it does appear that Sarkozy is beginning to lose his political grip a little bit. He's a, he's a man who is known to be the puppet master in, in France, to be in control of things. Um, talking to political analysts there, that's what's changing a little bit. That's what seems to have changed on three or four different issues. Ben mentioned some of them. The very bad election result, regional election results in March. Two ministers resigned this week over rather minor scandals to do with expenses. He didn't handle that particularly well. This issue about when he will have a re- cabinet reshuffle. He's dithered. He's held back. He hasn't acted very decisively, which is his traditional approach. And there's a sense that he's being driven by events rather than driving them. I mean, of course, he's not the only Western European leader in, in trouble. I mean, Angela Merkel in your, your old stomping ground Germany has is, is been going through a rough patch. And then Silvia Berlusconi in Italy, who another man who seems perpetually under siege, but also perpetually to be a survivor. Can, can you tell us what's going on with him? He is in, in another round of trouble. A, a close business ally of Mr Berlusconi resigned this week because he was involved in an, an alleged corruption scandal. He's the second minister to resign in a couple of months and that's underlined the problems Berlusconi's having within his own government. Last year, Berlusconi was, was wrapped up in all sorts of scandals to do with call girls, to do with cl- conflicts of interest between his business empire and his political activities. Now it seems to be almost a sense of political decay is coming largely because there's more competition and more infighting within the cabinet. A particularly important figure at the moment is Gianfranco Fini, who was a close political ally of Berlusconi, but in the last couple of months has grown increasingly hostile towards the Prime Minister, and they're now there at loggerheads, essentially. And there's increasing speculation that he may move on Berlusconi in the early autumn and try to unseat him and and, and take over the prime ministerialship. It's interesting, isn't it, though, because you'd think, in a sense, a a massive economic crisis, a crisis of financial capitalism, would set the stage for a resurgence of the left. Here we have three big centre-right leaders in in different sorts of troubles, Sarkozy, Berlusconi and, and Angela Merkel in Germany. And yet the left doesn't seem to be doing very well. Or am I getting that wrong? Do you, do you see a resurgence of conventional centre-left or left-wing opposition against any of those three? Not at all, as we saw the UK election as well. I mean, you know, it's also the, the centre-right emerging. No, no, I mean, the, the, that's been a theme of the last couple of years, essentially, that the, the left has, despite the, the, the economic agenda playing into their hands to some extent, they've lost the plot a little bit. You're right. I mean, in, in, in Italy and in France, the, the, the left are both quite weak. In, in, in Germany, they're just regrouping, so they're also relatively weak. So there's not, you're right, there's not a particular threat from the left at the moment. It's more the government's are struggling politically in in Italy and in France and on much more in terms of economically in Germany to get to grips with the problem and show some signs of unity and leadership. OK, Hugh, thank you very much. And Europe is warming up, if that's the word, for the great summer break. So maybe all these European leaders will, will be able to put their problems on hold for a little while and then come back in September and tackle them with fresh energy and a, and a fresh suntan. But we'll, we'll see. Things may yet unravel over the coming weeks. And we will be back next week to, to look at the unfolding political problems in Europe and elsewhere around the world. So I'd just like to thank you all for listening, to thank Hugh here in the studio, Ben in Paris, 
Anna in Guantanamo and, of course, Helen. World Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.